Shocking new footage of what the men in the unit of an accused war criminal thought about him. President Trump's Navy secretary says he was fired in the controversy over a Navy SEAL because the president gave him an order he couldn't, in good conscience, carry out. Arrived at the Eddie Gallagher. Edward Gallagher. Eddie Gallagher. Eddie Gallagher. Edward Gallagher. I saw Eddie take a shot at probably a 12-year-old kid. The guy got crazier and crazier. Yeah, you can tell he was perfectly okay with killing anybody. We can't let this continue. 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 In the summer of 2019, a group of investigators sat in a windowless room reviewing evidence and testimony. They heard from dozens of men who bore witness to the events in question, read thousands of messages, and watched hours upon hours of video. One of these videos, recorded from a helmet camera in May of 2017, shows a captured fighter for the Islamic State, weak and sickly thin. His watch slides up and down the entire length of his arm. He's fading in and out of consciousness, and then a hand reaches up, and the helmet stops recording. The helpless captive was then stabbed to death with a hunting knife, while men posed for pictures around his corpse, brandishing it like a trophy. The video in question, as well as the testimony of dozens of squad mates, would be only a fraction of the evidence in the court-martial of one man, standing for charges of war crimes. Today, I'm talking about Eddie Gallagher. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 63. Pardon me. If you enjoy this episode, and by the time I get to the end, you think I deserve it. I would love it if you subscribe to the show on your preferred platform. Hidden History is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all those other bootleg sites that lift the audio from somewhere else and upload it to their own platform. You know, can't really stop that from happening, so might as well steer into the skid and give it a plug. I, um, I also got some really interesting news the other day. Uh, Hidden History has officially charted you are actually, right now, listening to the 145th most popular society and cultural podcast and the 11th most popular philosophy podcast in all of Ukraine. I'm not really sure how that happened, but, you know, I'll take it. So, to the noble people of Ukraine, I say Dyakuyu. I'll do my best to retain your loyal listenership. A quick note, there actually won't be an episode next week because I'm taking a little bit of time off. I know, I know, whatever will you do without me? Well, I don't know, that seems more like a you problem. Anyway, let's get down to basics. Today I'm talking about war crimes, yes, but I don't actually think that it's the focus of this episode. Rather. Much in the vein of episode 47, 
what I really want to focus on is the social rehabilitation of evil. For all that evidence, Eddie Gallagher was acquitted of all major charges and then pardoned by the president, his rank reinstated. Gallagher now runs his own lifestyle brand that sells backpacks and quarter zips and thermoses. And earlier this week, he was the subject of a 60 Minutes documentary that served only to rehabilitate his image further. Eddie Gallagher is a man that bragged about killing three people a day for 80 days, a number that included women and children, civilians. His squadmates said that he hunted people like it was a sport and took pleasure in the act of killing. Eventually, these same men sabotaged the optics on his rifle in an attempt to prevent him from murdering more civilians. Now he sells branded beer koozies and t-shirts. Is that justice? Well, well, it turns out I lied a little bit. I'm not going to talk about just Eddie Gallagher in this episode, because the heinous things that he did didn't occur in a vacuum. They didn't happen for no reason. They happened because Eddie Gallagher is the result of a national culture that believes it could never be in the wrong, that every action people undertake on its behalf is justified, and that we, as Americans, are privy to special international privileges that are not afforded to other nations. So I'm going to take this concept, kind of the idea of the inherent violence of American exceptionalism, and put a pin in it. Because what I want to talk about now is what makes people commit atrocities. It's very, very easy to look at people like Eddie Gallagher or Chris Kyle, the American sniper, and see them as uniquely bad people, as statistical exceptions to the normal, moral people of America writ large. And it turns out that's not exactly true. That kind of reaction, the internal distancing of yourself from the perpetrator, it's kind of like a mental safety net. It prevents us from realizing that the most normal people are capable of even the most sickening things. It's time to talk about the human capacity for evil. Dr. James Waller, who is a Holocaust and Genocide Studies professor at Keene State College, has a book called Becoming Evil, How Ordinary People Commit Genocide and Mass Killing. And in it, he tells a very important story that goes a little bit like this. After the end of World War II, 24 of the highest-ranking surviving leaders of Nazi Germany were put on trial at Nuremberg to face their unfathomable crimes. Over the course of the trial, psychologists put each man through three separate psychological tests. Now that the full extent of the Holocaust had been discovered, the Allied leaders knew that these men must be uniquely deranged, that the architects of the murder of millions must be insane. The tests served only to discover the degree. One of these tests was the Rorschach inkblot, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. 
But the problem was, when psychologists analyzed the test results, they knew they were looking at the results from Nuremberg. And so they knew that they should be looking for pathology. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy, and everyone found what they were looking for. And then, the results from the Rorschach inkblots were analyzed blindly. And it turned out that 23 out of the 24 men were completely normal. It turns out, evil is not a gene. It's not a special trait that few are endowed with. The capacity for unfathomable evil is inherent within every one of us. And so I think that that really begs the further question of how do we confront the fact that the vast majority of atrocities are committed by ordinary people just like us? I don't know about you, but that is a very good question that I don't think I have an answer to. But anyway, given that I can't spend time thinking about it on air, I suppose it's about time that I circled my way back to Eddie Gallagher and American War Crimes Abroad. Now, I'm sure you can probably tell through my barely concealed loathing, but I think that Eddie Gallagher is a stomach-churning monster who embodies the very worst possible qualities of the human soul, and I think he deserves to rot in prison until he dies. But ultimately, that critique, it's useless. I'm a small political podcaster who's mildly popular in America and very popular in Ukraine. Uh, I don't have the platform to change the course of Eddie Gallagher's life. I wish that I did. The only thing I can do is what I've been doing for the past three years, which is teach you about it and try to convince you that this matters, that everything matters. But anyway, let's talk about Eddie Gallagher as a manifestation of American exceptionalism. Now, American exceptionalism is something that I've talked about at length on this show so I'm not going to spend more time redefining it here. Instead, I'm going to talk about three separate things that embody American exceptionalism. The Philippine-American War, the My Lai Massacre, and the Highway of Death. Let's start chronologically with the 1898 Treaty of Paris, which ended the Spanish-American War. Now, one of the provisions of the Treaty of Paris was that the United States would take control of the Philippines. The people of the Philippines objected to this. They didn't want to be the property of a new colonial power. They wanted freedom. The United States disagreed. The result was a scorched-earth war of attrition that left between 250,000 and a million Filipino civilians dead. 200,000 from cholera alone. In November 1901, the Manila correspondent for the Philadelphia Public Ledger wrote that, quote, Our men have been relentless, have killed to exterminate men, women, children, prisoners, and captives, active insurgents, and suspected people from lads of 10 up. 
the idea of prevailing that the Filipino as such was little better than a dog. A soldier from New York State wrote that, quote, The town of Titatia was surrendered to us a few days ago, and two companies occupy the same. Last night, one of our boys was found shot and his stomach cut open. Immediately, orders were received from General Wheaton to burn the town and kill every native in sight, which was done to a finish. About a thousand men, women, and children were reported killed. I am probably growing hard-hearted, for I am in my glory when I can sight my gun on some dark skin and pull the trigger. General Jacob Smith, personally responsible for ordering the murder of around 50,000 civilians, told American soldiers that, quote, I want no prisoners. I wish you to kill and burn, and the more you kill and burn, the better it will please me. I want all persons killed who are capable of bearing arms in actual hostilities against the United States. He ordered his men to kill anyone over the age of ten and return the island to, quote, a howling wilderness. Filipinos were put into concentration camps, which were described by the soldiers that manned them as the suburbs of hell. After the war, the United States Senate Committee on the Philippines held an investigation into war crimes and atrocities committed by United States forces. They found the Philippine-American War to be one of the most humane wars in history. Let's move up a bit in the chronology. It's time to talk about the Vietnam War. On the 16th of March, 1968, a company of soldiers from the 20th Infantry Regiment approached an area known as Son Mai, home to multiple different villages, on a mission to destroy the Viet Cong's 48th Local Force Battalion. Under orders of their captain, Ernest Medina, soldiers were to kill livestock, poison wells, and burn houses. Already despicable, but what actually happened would be much, much worse. Someone asked Captain Medina who their enemy was. He responded that, quote, anybody that was running from us, hiding from us, or appeared to be the enemy. If a man was running, shoot him. Sometimes even if a woman with a rifle was running, shoot her. The men were now under orders to kill anything that was, quote, walking, crawling, or growling. The unsuspecting villagers in Mai Lai were herded into the center of town. All were unarmed. The killings started suddenly. Soldiers began to attack them with bayonets. One man pushed a woman down a well and threw a grenade in after her. Twenty people on their hands and knees sat praying at a temple, begging for their lives. They were all shot in the back of the head. The soldiers gang-raped helpless women and young girls and then murdered them. In the investigation afterwards, soldiers testified that mothers were shouting, No VC! No Viet Cong! 
and trying to shield their children with their bodies. It didn't work, and they were lined up in an irrigation ditch and shot, their children in their hands. Private First Class Dennis Conti would later testify that, quote, a lot of women had thrown themselves on top of children to protect them, and the children were alive at first. Then, the children who were old enough to walk got up, and Lieutenant Callie began to shoot the children. At 11 o'clock, they sat down their weapons and took a break for lunch. The My Lai Massacre was stopped largely thanks to the intervention of a helicopter pilot, Hugh Thompson Jr., who landed his reconnaissance helicopter near the village after noticing the death and destruction from the air. Here's what he said happened directly after. Then we saw a young girl, about 20 years old, lying in the grass. We could see that she was unarmed and wounded in the chest. We marked her with smoke because we saw a squad not too far away. The smoke was green, meaning it's safe to approach. Red would have meant the opposite. We were hovering six feet off the ground, not more than 20 feet away, when Captain Medina came over, kicked her, stepped back, and finished her off. He did it right in front of us. When we saw Medina do that, it clicked. It was our guys doing the killing. Thompson and his crew landed later to refuel and discovered a young child alive under a pile of corpses. They evacuated the child, Boda, to a hospital and then reported the massacre to their superiors. They ignored it. The army participated in a systematic cover-up of the My Lai Massacre until the story broke to the general public on November 12, 1969. In order to try and buy his silence, the army awarded Thompson the Distinguished Flying Cross, saying that it was for his heroic rescue of Boda from an intense crossfire. Thompson took his medal and threw it out. He would go on to testify against the 26 men who committed war crimes at My Lai. But even though there was significant evidence, many of the charges were dropped. And out of the 26, only one, Lieutenant William Kelly, was found guilty. The rest were acquitted. Kelly was sentenced to life, which was reduced to 20 years which ended up being three and a half years under house arrest. Is that justice? According to the troops that participated in Operation Speedy Express, which began in 1969, massacres by U.S. troops in Vietnam were the equivalent of, quote, a my lie a month for a whole year. All right, one more for this week. On August 2nd, 1990, Iraq, under the leadership of Saddam Hussein, invaded Kuwait under a dispute between, among other things, oil pricing. That very same day, the United Nations issued a Security Council Resolution 660, 
which demanded that Iraq immediately and unconditionally restore things to their state as of August 1st. Iraq obviously didn't comply, and as a result, coalition forces including the United States, Great Britain, Egypt, France, and 31 other nations engaged in Operation Desert Shield, which lasted until January 17, 1991, at which point it became Operation Desert Storm. Obviously, both of these things make up the first Gulf War. Now, the first Gulf War doesn't last very long. Desert Storm starts on the 17th of January, but at that point it's just aerial bombardments. That lasts up until February 24th, which is the beginning of the ground assault. The Gulf War ended a hundred hours after the ground campaign began, and even before the 24th, Iraqi leadership knew that they were going to lose. It was just a matter of time. By the time coalition forces deploy their infantry, the Iraqi military is already crumbling around them. So much so that on February 25th, the day after the start of the ground campaign, a column of hostages, civilians, refugees, and fleeing fractions of the army began to retreat down Highway 80 towards the Iraqi port of Basra. On February 25th, coalition forces led by the Americans under command of Norman Schwarzkopf destroyed the front and rear of the massive convoy. As the vehicles were forced to a halt, jets descended on them with cluster bombs and rained hell for ten hours straight. Though a good amount of people escaped by running out into the surrounding desert, the mass killing on the Basra Road left a thousand people, many civilians, dead in the sand. It turns out, unsurprisingly, that killing people who are not trying to fight you is a war crime. Specifically, it's a violation of the Third Geneva Convention Common Article 3, which says that you can't kill soldiers who are, quote, out of combat. But that little Geneva Convention violation shouldn't be surprising. During the internal investigation of the My Lai Massacre, the army found that the majority of U.S. soldiers didn't understand the Geneva Convention. And upon learning that, they made absolutely no effort to educate them. But even if every American battalion had an attached human rights lawyer, there still wouldn't be any justice for international war crimes. And that's mostly thanks to a piece of legislation from 2002 called ASPA, or the American Service Members Protection Act. And the goal of it is to quote, protect United States military personnel and other elected and appointed officials of the United States government against criminal prosecution by an international criminal court to which the United States is not a party. It grants the executive branch authority to use, quote, all means necessary and appropriate to bring about the release of any U.S. or allied personnel being detained or imprisoned by on behalf of, or at the request of, the International Criminal Court. Essentially, what ASPA says is that if any other country ever had the audacity to seek justice for American war crimes, 
and the International Criminal Court ever had the audacity to prosecute individuals for those crimes at The Hague, then worst comes to worst, America goes to war over it. I don't know about you, but it strikes me as decidedly evil to make threats of force to prevent people from holding heinous criminals accountable for heinous crimes. I feel like the all-around easier thing to do would be to just not commit war crimes in the first place. But then again, that's just me. What do I know? So, we're getting towards the end of the episode, and I've talked a lot about the human capacity for and our propagation of evil. So, where does Eddie Gallagher come into this? The answer, I hope, should be pretty obvious. He's a war criminal, and he's gotten away with it. There are people who are rallying behind this man, people who see his acquittal as a great moral victory over the political establishment. What does the behavior of those people, their veneration of a war criminal who said he would gladly campaign for the president's re-election campaign if asked, what does that say about the values in our society? The American cultural memory is admittedly a rather short thing. But even if it wasn't, then the things that Eddie Gallagher did didn't have a direct enough effect on the American population as a whole to matter to a lot of people. Quite frankly, to me, that is terrifying. We can mentally distance ourselves from his crimes, and there will always be those who claim that what he did must have been necessary, and that I shouldn't comment on it because I don't know what it's like. I can almost guarantee you that I'll have one of those comments on this episode maybe within 10 minutes of publication. I should hope that it's clear that I have no time for the defenders of war criminals, and if you're one of those, then I don't want you to enjoy my show. But I digress. The mental distance that we can create between us and the criminals, between us and them, is really only in our heads. Just like the Nuremberg inkblots, if we look at something searching for pathology, then we will find pathology. The uncomfortable fact of the matter is that heinous crimes are committed by normal people. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.